How many of you have heard uh, the name Arthur Conan Doyle? You know who that is? What's he famous for? Yeah, he's the writer of, of Sherlock Holmes. Um, what is less well-known uh, about Arthur Conan Doyle is that he was also a medical doctor, and he rejected his family's Catholicism, but embraced spiritualism, that is, the belief that it's possible to communicate with the dead. Somewhere I heard about an experience that Arthur Conan Doyle had while he was traveling on a ship. As the story goes, he was sitting in his cabin one day, uh, writing in his journal, when he heard a man shouting outside his porthole. And it caught his attention because this man had the foulest mouth that he had ever heard. He was shouting profanities. He was using God's name in vain repeatedly. And Doyle wondered what kind of a man this was that could be so vulgar. And so he walked out of his cabin onto the deck, and there he saw that the man was a ship employee at work. He was stripped to the waist, and his upper body was covered with tattoos. Uh, most of which had a religious theme. There was a large cross and several other Christian symbols. Arthur Conan Doyle walked back into his cabin and wrote this in his journal. It was just as I suspected. Most people's Christianity is only skin deep. Apparently, his conclusion about most of the Christians that he had met was that their faith made no more difference in the way they actually lived their lives than a tattoo did. He didn't think that faith in Jesus really changes a person, I mean, deep down. Once you get beyond the surface, beyond the religious lingo and the religious rituals of most Christians, they're pretty much the same as everyone else. But the Apostle Paul would beg to differ because Jesus did change him to the core. When he was apprehended by Christ and he was filled with the love of God and the Spirit of God, <clears throat> his life was completely transformed. And he didn't see himself as an anomaly. He believed that everyone who has genuine faith in Jesus is completely different than a non-Christian, deep down. After all, we're now one with Jesus himself. He lives in us. So to behave like people in whom Jesus does not live, to be different from them only in skin-deep ways, is unthinkable. And no doubt you agree with that if you're a Christian. You know that your life should be dramatically different than the life of a non-Christian. And no doubt you want your life to be different. You want to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, to use Paul's words in Ephesians 4.1. But is that the kind of life you're living? You know who you are in Christ, but is that who you are in real life? Or is there a gap between your aspirations and your actions? If there is, then today you are going to learn how to close the gap. Paul is going to teach us how to change for the better in ways that are more than skin deep. He's going to show us how to become righteous and holy in those parts of our lives where we may not feel like we are very righteous or very holy. And then he's going to shift our focus from what we normally think about when we use words like righteousness and holiness to an aspect of our lives that is very important to God but often neglected by us 
as we strive to become more like Him. Paul begins in verse 17 of Ephesians 4 by telling us something that we know we need to hear, and he does so with an authoritative tone. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That's kind of funny that he says that because he's actually writing to Gentiles. We know that from what he said earlier in in the letter. He's writing to people who are not Jewish. Um, But his use of that term Gentiles essentially means non-Christians. You see, Paul uh, was Jewish, and historically, Jews thought all Gentiles were far from God. Um, And Paul was still trying to wrap his mind around the, the fact that God included Gentiles in his family. See, in Paul's mind, everyone who was part of the church was part of what he called the Israel of God. So we are the Israel of God. That's the way Paul would say it. And those who are outside the family of God, they are Gentiles. But his point is simply the people who follow Jesus should live very differently than those who don't. And then he takes pains to explain why non-Christians act the way they do. You see, our behavior, whatever our spiritual status, our behavior is like the tip of an iceberg. Um, There is so much that goes on below the the surface that explains why we do what we do. And I think Paul's reason for describing what's going on in the hearts and minds of non-Christians is just to remind us how very different we are now that we are Christians. He says, I insist in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. It's a very unflattering description of who we used to be. At the very deepest level, we had a hard heart. Um, Let's go on to the next. There you go. Right there. That's it. It shows it right down at the the bottom, right in the core of who we are. We were were hardened. The, the, The Old Testament talks about us having a heart of stone. We were stubbornly resistant to God. And apart from His grace, there was no way that we could believe in Christ or follow His teachings because the devil had blinded us to the truth. And yet we still had a free will, and we chose to reject God and to do our own thing. And because our heart was hard, because we had had built up a wall to keep God out, there was no way for spiritual truth to seep in and affect our thinking. And so there was a sense in which our mind was empty. Actually, Paul uses three different words to describe the thinking of an unbeliever. Futile or empty, dark and ignorant. See, the Spirit of God wanted to enlighten us, but because we had shut Him out, there was nothing left but a a, a mind void of divine truth and therefore defenseless against the thoughts that got planted there by the devil. That's what was going on below the surface in our lives, and it explains why we lived an impure life. Having lost all sensitivity to God, Paul says, referring to Gentiles, They have given themselves over to sensuality 
so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So to live in sensuality just means to do whatever feels good with no boundaries. It's often used in the context of sexual promiscuity. The New Living Translation says they have no sense of shame. People who are far from God indulge their sinful appetites, and yet they are ever hungrier for more. Now, if I'm describing you, I'm not talking about your past life, but I'm actually talk, I'm describing your present life, I hope that you will know that it's not too late to change. You are not doomed to a life of alienation from God. The Scriptures teach us that at the moment that we repent, which simply means to make a U-turn, at the moment that we turn back to God and put our faith in Jesus, we believe that He died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. At the moment that you do that, the walls of your heart will come crumbling down. The Spirit of God will come rushing in. He will cleanse you from your past, give you a clean slate, a fresh start. And He will give you the power to live the kind of life that God blesses and rewards with immortality. Now, if you've already made that decision, if you know that you're a Christian, then think about how different you are than who you used to be at every depth of the iceberg. I mean, you now have a soft heart, a heart of flesh, the Scripture calls it. It, it, it welcomes the seed of God's Word like good soil. In fact, Jesus Himself has made His home in your heart. And because of that, you now have the mind of Christ. It's not empty. It's full of, of Scripture, and it is attentive to the voice of God's Spirit. And Paul doesn't talk about it here, but he's been talking about it earlier in the book of Ephesians. You have incredible power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you. Uh, he, he, that power source can do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. That's the power that is coursing through your veins. So you have everything that you need to live a godly life. At least that's the way it should work. But we all know too well that that's not the way it always does work. Even as Christians, we sometimes find ourselves living like our old self, right? Now, uh, there may be some people, even in this room, who would profess to be Christians, and you don't feel particularly uncomfortable with that inconsistency between your profession of faith and your immoral life. But, you know, those of us who are true disciples of Jesus can't live with that dissonance. When we struggle with sinful habits or character flaws, we're ashamed and we're frustrated because we long to become in every area of our life who we already are in Christ. But how does that kind of change happen? This is one of the most preached about and written about topics among Christians. I mean, if there's one question that Christians struggle with, it is, how do I stop sinning? And I mean, you could find loads of, of ideas about that. You've heard more tips on how to stop sinning than you could possibly remember. But if the only advice that we had access to came from the New Testament, it would simplify things a lot. Paul offers this very same advice over and over again in Romans 6, in Galatians 5, here in Ephesians 4, and in Colossians 3. He's so repetitive and so simple 
in his teaching that I am amazed by how much we've complicated it. Do you want to know how to live a life worthy of your calling? Just read the paragraph that begins in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I know that doesn't sound all that profound, but that right there is the secret to breaking free from your pre-Christian lifestyle. There are three um, steps, I guess you could say. Step one is in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire. So let's just write those exact words on our outline. Put off your old self. Write it there. Put off your old self. That's what Paul tells us to do. Actually, there's some debate about how verse 22 should be translated. Some Greek nerds would say that Paul is not telling us what to do, but rather what is true. They say it should be translated, you were taught with regard to your former way of life that you have put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. In other words, your old self is dead. That translation is grammatically possible, and those who translate it that way might point to cross-references like Romans 6, which says, we are those who have died to sin. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, with Christ, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Or they might quote Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or Colossians 3, for you died. You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You see, it's theologically true that we already have put off our old self. But then why does it say in Ephesians 4.22 that our old self is still being corrupted by its deceitful desires? And why did Paul say this in Galatians 5 about the conflicting desires we still have? The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. He's saying no matter what you do, whether you choose to do what's right or whether you choose to do what's wrong, a part of you is going to be disappointed. And why does Paul exhort us in Romans 6 to count ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Why does he say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires? And why does he say in Colossians 3, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature? You see, whatever we believe about our old self, whether we think it's dead or we think that it's somehow clinging to life, um, there's no denying that for whatever reason, we still feel sinful desires. How are we supposed to deal with that? How do we conquer those temptations? Simple. Just say no to what you know is wrong. That's Paul's advice. Look at it. That's what he says. Just put off your old self. 
When I read that, I couldn't help but think of a comedy sketch that I've seen in which Bob Newhart plays a therapist with a unique approach. Watch how he counsels this woman to overcome a destructive habit. I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. <laughs> He said that he charged $5 for five minutes of counsel, and usually he didn't use the whole five minutes. That's also in the sketch. What makes that thing so funny is how simplistic it sounds, right? Um, and yet, I would argue that that's pretty much what the Apostle Paul told us to do when it comes to sin. Just stop it. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no other strategies for overcoming sins that have become habits. I mean, the Scriptures talk about the power of prayer and fasting. They, they talk about uh, the power of teamwork. You know, two are better than one, right? Uh, and, and three are better than two. And confession matters because bad things grow in the dark, and uh, sometimes they die in the light. There are lots of different ways to grow in your ability to say no to sin, but understand this, they are all built on the foundation of the truth that you never have to do what you know is wrong. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. The indwelling Spirit of God is able to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or even imagine. As hard as it is to put off your old self, you can do it. The next time you face a temptation, no matter how strong it is, just say no, Paul says. You can do that. And as a follower of Jesus, you must do that. We say, okay, but isn't there like anything that we can do to at least reduce the ferocity of the temptation? Well, yes, there is, and this is where Paul kind of dips below the surface. He says, you were taught, verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. It sounds a lot like Romans 12.1, doesn't it? Remember that verse, be transformed, is it 12.2? Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Write down those three words, renew your mind. Right there at the mind level. That's how transformation happens. What's going on above the surface is affected by what is going on below the surface. How we think shapes how we live. And we don't have an empty mind like we did before we were Christians. We have the mind of Christ. 
Have you ever thought, what did Jesus fill his mind with? And we have a tendency not to go any further because we go, well, he was God, so I couldn't relate to it anyway. But he was also 100% human. And um, there, if you read the Gospels, there's no doubt that Jesus was very sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and that he knew the Scriptures. Well, you, and you say, well, of course he did. He co-wrote them. But I do not think that Jesus came into this world with the Bible preloaded onto the hard drive of his brain. I think that he set aside many of the advantages that come with deity so that he could exemplify how to live the best possible human life. I think that Jesus studied the Scriptures. I think that when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness and he quoted the book of Deuteronomy to the tempter three times, he was speaking passages that he had memorized. And I believe that the more our thinking is shaped by Scripture, the more power we will have to say no to temptation. The verb in Ephesians 4.23 where he, where he says um, to, to renew the attitude of your minds, it's actually a present tense. It can be con a continual action. The idea is you were taught to keep on renewing the attitude of your mind. Essentially, Paul is telling us to continually fill our minds with truth. A great cross-reference would probably be uh, Colossians 3.16 where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do that? Well, it starts by reading the Bible, uh, studying it, thinking deeply about what it is that we have read. The biblical word for that, that rumination over Scripture, the, the, the pondering of it, the reciting it to ourselves is meditation. Meditation, as a Christian would use that word, does not mean to empty the mind, but it means to saturate the mind with the Word of God. Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. That's a lot of rumination. As New Testament believers, we would say it this way. Blessed is the one who meditates on the Word of God day and night. And that verse in Colossians mentions a couple of other practical ways to renew our mind. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. See, it's a group exercise. We don't just study and memorize the Bible on our own. We gather together. Uh, we teach the Bible to one another, and we urge one another to obey it. So fellowship matters. It's very, very important when it comes to becoming a more holy and righteous person. you got to hang out with other Christians. It matters that you come to church. It matters that you're a part of a small group or that you're in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship. Whatever it is that you are doing to spend time with other Christians in a way that is centered around God's Word uh, renews your mind. And we also let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as we sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. So worship, the singing of biblical truth, like we did this morning, that renews our mind too. Now, the more that we expose our mind to Scripture, the more that it rejects the urges of our old self. Like Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
When I became a Christian, um, my behavior changed in many dramatic ways, but one part of my old self that, sing, that just wanted to cling to life was my temper. I had an anger problem. I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't seem to muster the self-control to put on the brakes before I erupted. And so what I did is I got out a Bible concordance. It's a tool that shows me the use of uh, every word in the Bible. I just looked up the word anger, and I started looking up all the different passages, and I typed them out on a half sheet of paper that I still have in my old day timer. This was before iPhones. Uh, and I, had, I, I found 13 different verses on anger that I read over and over again and that I tried to memorize, and I highlighted two of them because they helped me the most. One was James 1, 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And then the other verse that I highlighted, and I even have a little red star next to this one because it just hit me across the forehead like a two-by-four. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. See, I hid those words in my heart, and it helped me not to sin against God. But renewing our minds does more than that. You see, Ephesians 4.23 is sort of a hinge verse. It has something to say about how to put off your old self, but it also has something to say about how to put on the new self. See that in verse 24? Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You want to write that on your outline. Put on the new self. Not even changing the words. This is what Paul says. Put on the new self. What's the new self? It's that part of us that wants to do what we know is righteous and holy. It's the part of us that is delighted that we are in the process of becoming more and more like God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And Paul says, just put on that new self. Do the righteous thing. Do the holy thing. We say, really? That's it? Just do it? Well, do you see anything else in the passage? That's what he says. You can do it, so do it. Like Luke Skywalker, we say, I'll give it a try. But like Yoda, Paul says, no, try not, do or do not. There is no try. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was working down in my office, and I heard Robin's voice at the top of the stairs. Greg, can you come up here? You need to see something. Whenever she says something like that, you need to see something, I know it's going to be bad. <laughs> These days, for whatever reason, my house is at, right at that age where everything is breaking. And I thought, what broke now? Sure enough, when I got to the top of the stairs, she brought me outside, and the gutter hang on, the side of, on the side of my house was hanging down. Eight screws had come out. It was pointed down at a 45-degree angle. In the forecast was a storm later that day. And I looked at that, and I go, gosh, I wonder if I can fix that. So I got out my extension ladder, and I climbed up, and I had to put the, the, the ladder under the eaves, you know, because you can't lean it up against the gutter. And so I put it there, and I was trying to reach back, and it's like, I'm not going to be able to reach this. I'm going to go down if I try to do this. I can't fix this. And so I, uh, I went inside, and I called a gutter company. Got the one that had the best rating in our area. 
called him up and I said, can you, you know, my gutter's down, can you come fix it? He goes, sure, in April. <laughs> so um, I, I, I called Joe <laughs> for advice, just for advice. And uh, he, he said that he had a neighbor across the street who was a roofer, maybe he could help. So I called the roofer, got his answering machine, but I said, uh, yeah, my name is Greg and, and and your neighbor, Joe, is my friend. I mean, I leveraged this the best that I could. Uh, you know, so, you know, as I said, I'm Joe's friend, and I'm just wondering if you, know, you could come over and help Joe's friend with this problem. And uh, I didn't get a call back, and so I called Joe again, and I said, could you call him? And so Joe called him, and like with, within an hour, he was at my house. And he didn't even knock on the door. I had to come outside, and he was already working on the gutter. And I was blown away. I said, well... well well, how much do I owe you? And he said, he said, nothing. Your friend Joe snow blows my driveway. <laughs> and he doesn't do it to make extra. He doesn't charge for it, right? He doesn't do it to make extra money. When he's done doing his driveway, he just, he just putters around the neighborhood and he does other people's driveways. I asked him, did you do it this morning? He said, nope, I did it last night. So, you know, this is just a practical way that Joe loves his neighbors. So I got my gutter fixed for free because Joe cleared this roofer's driveway, which is to say that Joe put on the new self. That's what he was doing. Now you might think, well, wait a minute. That was nice, but how is snow blowing someone's driveway an example of righteousness and holiness? Because that's what it says in verse 24, that we're, we're to put on the new self, which is, to, which is becoming more righteous and holy. So how is that, how is that, you know, how does that fit in the category of, uh, of holiness? I mean, when I look at words like righteousness and holiness, usually I'm thinking of uh, like sexual sin, mostly. Stuff that is obviously impure. I'm thinking, I'm thinking God wants me to be pure instead of being enslaved to sensuality. And for sure, purity matters. We're going to see that next week. But there is more to being like God than being pure. How does the Scripture describe God? God is, I'd say more than anything else, God is love. So 1 John says twice, God is Love. So righteousness and holiness begins with love. Notice that right after Paul exhorts us in verse 24 to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, he gets into specifics. And what does he talk about first? He talks about relational righteousness. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it has to do with all that Paul has been saying in this book about what God is doing in the world. So much of Ephesians is about how God is bringing people together from near and far through their common love for Jesus. And he's been telling us that it's our job to preserve the unity that Jesus died to create. How do we do that? We do it by becoming more like Jesus in the way that we treat each other. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul begins his teaching on righteousness and holiness by specifying those relational sins that we have to put off and the relational virtues that we must put on to become more like Christ. These are some of the most important ways in which we are called to be different than who we used to be. 
Look at the list, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. That's significant. The the body of Christ will be much healthier and more, more harmonious if we put off lying and put on truthfulness. Anytime we justify lying in any form, exaggeration, flattery, half-truths, little white lies, we're living like Gentiles instead of Christians. Colossians 3 says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. We know that Jesus always told the truth, and so we must always tell the truth. Then verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So when does the devil get a foothold in our life? When we let the sun go down in our anger. In other words, when we hold on to a grudge. Down in verse 31, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness. That's just a one-word restatement of everything that he's saying here in verse 26. So what's the opposite of bitterness? Forgiveness. In verse 32, Paul commands us to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave us. Now, you know that Jesus talked about forgiveness a lot. He, he embedded it in what we call the Lord's prayers, the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And then as soon as the prayer ends, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's in Matthew 6. And then later in Matthew 18, when Simon Peter asks Jesus how many times He should forgive someone who has sinned against him, and he tried to impress the Lord by suggesting that maybe you should do it seven times. And Jesus responded, more like 70 times seven. And then he told a story about a servant whose master forgave him a great debt, and then the servant went out and refused to forgive a fellow servant a much smaller debt. You remember how that story ends? Jesus said, in anger... His master handed him over to the jailers <coughs> to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owned. This is a story about what happens when we hold a grudge. Some, in some sense, we are tortured. And we think, no, I'm torturing the other person for what they did to me. But they're doing fine. You're the one that's suffering. And he added these words, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from the heart. I don't know of any aspect of love that gets more ink in the New Testament than forgiveness. We all have plenty of opportunities to build up resentment, but Paul says that's part of your old life. As those who have been forgiven by God, we must forgive one another. Don't say, I'll try. Just do it. Maybe God brought you to church today for no other reason than for you to hear that because you've been nursing a grudge. And that bitterness has cost you dearly. I'm sure there's a story, but to Paul, the story is not the issue. 
The issue is obedience. He says, let it go. Now. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You shall not steal, the Eighth Commandment says. So shoplifting, embezzlement, fudging the numbers on your tax form, making under-the-table deals, falsifying hours, failing to pay off debt, all of it has to go. That's part of your past. Now put on hard work and generosity, like Joe does after a snowstorm. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Listen, if you struggle with an unbridled tongue, and who doesn't? I can't think of a better verse to memorize than this one. That word unwholesome means rotten, literally. And there are all kinds of rotten speech. Over in chapter 5, verse 4, three different types of rotten speech are mentioned. Obscenity, which is just rampant these days, especially on the screen. In case you're wondering, the F word is still obscene, no matter how many dozen times you hear it per episode. And then foolish talk is forbidden. If you want to know how fools talk, just look up every use of the word fool or fools in the book of Proverbs. It's amazing how often their tongues are getting themselves, are getting them into trouble. Uh, and then Ephesians 5.4 says that coarse joking is out of place. Like, don't tell dirty jokes. Any, any words that are unwholesome or unedifying or ungracious are out of place for Christians. Instead, our speech should be edifying. That means they build people up rather than tearing them down. And they should be gracious rather than judgmental. I know this is a super hard one because our tongue is so hard to control. James 3 says that the tongue is a fire, a world of evil um, among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And James says no one can tame the tongue, no human being. And that's true, but the Spirit of God can tame the tongue. And as those who are new creatures, we are filled with the Spirit, and so we must allow the Spirit to control what we say. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Message says, don't break God's heart. What breaks God's heart? Unwholesome speech does. Another hinge verse, what comes before and what comes after. Unwholesome speech breaks his heart. And verse 31, so does bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. There's a lot of words there. I think I can summarize it with these three words, which we would add to bitterness that we've already put on the list. We would put rage there, any kind of uncontrolled anger, whether it causes you to verbally or physically hurt another person. Slander, which is saying something negative about someone that you know is not true. And malice, which is the, the desire to hurt someone in some way. All of those sins are part of our past. Now that we've put off our old self and put on our new self, we must, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave us. So forgiveness is already on the list, but you can add kindness and compassion. Now I know there's way too much there for us to absorb in just a few minutes. But wouldn't you agree that this is a list that deserves some 
rumination? Wouldn't it be a good thing to just sit down before God and to say, now, Lord, I'm going to look over this list again. I'm going to do it slowly. And I just want you to know that if there's anything you want to say to me, I'm listening. Maybe if we did that, he would pinpoint one particular area where he wants us to be um, more like Jesus. He might, he might point out something he wants us to put off or something that he wants us to put on. And who knew that following Jesus would be this all-encompassing? I mean, we thought, when we became a Christian, we thought, oh, it's just a matter of accepting a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So I believe in him. Ta-da, I jumped through the hoop, I'm done. But we got ourselves into something that is way more than skin deep. What actually happened when you believed in Jesus was that the old you died and the new you was born. Your heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. Your mind became a reservoir for divine truth. And your life is now in the process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And every time you say no to sin and yes to the Spirit, especially in your relationships, you become a little more like Jesus and the church grows toward the goal of becoming, in every respect, the mature body of Christ. And so I just want to encourage you today not to become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Yes, we all stumble in many ways, even after the old is gone and the new has come, But though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So hang in there. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to pray for my friends here and for myself that all of us will become what you were dreaming of when you saved us and, and, and transformed us. Thank you so much that we don't have to live the way that we used to live. And I know that some of us here are struggling to believe that because of ways that, 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 that choices that we're making that we know are wrong. And I, I pray that you would simply give us the, the resolve that comes from you based on the truth of Scripture that we do have the power to do it. We have the power to put it off. May many who are here right now Make that choice today. And may all of us make the choice to put on whatever virtues you're calling us to put on. Help us to be especially sensitive to other people around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to treat them in exactly the way that you would treat them if you were standing here in our place. May we be more like Jesus in the way that we love one another. Thank you that you can do that and that you are doing that in us. May this be a week that puts a big smile on your face because of the way that we uh, put off our old self and put on the new self. In Jesus' name, amen.